Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Welcome to another week of Best Served Cold, where we drink wine and talk about crime and occasionally say things that are sort of funny, but not really. G'day, mateys. G'day, mateys. This is the... Uh, Welcome to the fair dinkum true blue dog Aussie. on a tucker box. <laughs> it's a dog on a tucker box. It's our annual Australia. I'm I'm calling it right here. Annually, we have a tr- anyone not in Australia has no fucking clue what we're talking about right now. Actually, just Google dog on a tucker box. Yeah, trust me. Dog on a tucker. Just Google it, and then you'll you'll understand. You'll, you'll s- it's pretty self-explanatory. Though. It's, it's, it's a, a little piece of our Australian it's culture. It's a dog on a tucker box. Little Australian culture for your for your people. If there's any statues that you shouldn't push down, it's that one. Yeah, no one's offended by the dog on the tucker box. What if What think. if it comes out that it's like a super racist? It's a super statue, racist dog. And you're like, wow, fuck yeah, he's, <laughs> he was like a very bad dog. <laughs> he barked at a lot of people he shouldn't have. Bad doggo. Bad dog. There's no such thing as a truly bad doggo. I think all dogs are good. It's just, it's kind of like with how we discovered with serial killers. It's like, I don't think people are necessarily born evil. They're kind of like made. That into like segued into a really deep it is, place. But I wasn't that's the thing expecting. about, there's this thing about dogs psychologically too, is that I don't think they're really out of bad dogs. I think there's dogs yeah. that just have a rough cop growing up. I really thought you just said rough cock. He just had a really rough cock growing up. In some instances, I'm sure they I'm did sure have a rough do. cock. They probably do. I can't say I know that much about dog penises. No. Welcome to the podcast, which is now we exclusively talk about dog penises. Yeah. I hear they inflate. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I don't know. I'd rather not think about it too much, to be It's honest. better than um cat penises that are apparently Okay, can barbed. we not go on a huge segue about animal <laughs> penises? Because it's weird. This podcast so we can is... talk about severed heads getting fucked, but we can't talk about dog penises. That's a good point. You see the logic there? <laughs> uh, well exactly. then. Exactly. Sorry to break your fucking image of our perfect show. but Well, I don't know. There seems something weirdly sacred and shouldn't yeah, be spoken about. Animals. about. They're, too, they're pure angels. Mm. Anyway. Uh, as we were saying. Um, are my levels okay? Because I'm like hardly. Yeah, no, you're fine. Okay, sweet. Don't worry about it. Um, how's your week been, Tama? Great. Um, we've just been, uh, it's been a pretty chill week, I guess. Like, we've been working hard on our respective stuff. And, um, in terms of me, my music's kind of, uh, taken a bit of a chunk out of my time. We've got a song and an EP coming out, following up our single that we released not too long ago with, um, Juno. And, um, yeah, just been researching for this uh this topic today it's gonna be my life what about you um just working doing socials we've joined twitter yeah we're tweeters now um tweeter tweeter i don't remember what our username is which is not helpful isn't it just the best no because that was already taken what fuckers um, it's always so annoying because it's like someone who joined Twitter in like 2013 and hasn't posted, but they've got like the best usernames because they joined really early yeah. in the piece. See, the thing is about that is you can actually contact Twitter and be like, can these you? people. Yeah, you can. Can you only it's, do that if you're like famous though? I don't know. 
uh, I've I've known it to be a thing with certain people. They've 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 successfully. Hey, tweeter! I don't know if you know this, but we're kind of a big deal. I'd like my username back, please. Yeah. Like for um, I don't know anyone who isn't famous that's done it, but a lot of famous people have done it. Yeah, well, it's like, how are you gonna, you know, have like Taylor Swift as your Instagram handle yeah. and not be the or be <laughs> or just Taylor like, Swift? Yeah, that's what's so annoying about Twitter for me is that. I think what's annoying for for me is having my handle as something else for one thing and then having it as a different thing yes, for another. Yes, like the infuriating inconsistency. Yeah. But we are there um, somewhere. What do you type in to get I have no that? idea. I've never, I've never searched. Why would I have searched myself? We'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, I've found like there's a really lovely little like true crime community on Twitter, which I really like. Yeah, shouts out to those um, folks. And it's, like, very wholesome and lovely, and I enjoy it. Which is strange, because we're a group of people that, you know, again, love to talk about people who have sex with severed heads. But yeah. in, like, such a wholesome way. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, a, a shared interest in, holy shit, humans are fucked up. Yeah. Hmm. Good point. Um. But, yeah, just to, to touch on what we were saying before, this is our big old Australian episode, because... Mm. Not not because we planned it or anything. I think it just sort of fell in line, kind of like with our um our female episode with Elsa Cock and Catherine um, Knight. Catherine Knight, that episode kind of just fell into place perfectly. Um, I think it's sort of it's sort of happened a lot with all of our episodes where every yeah, single episode seem to has like been tea, yeah perfectly matching with each other hmm. for some reason. We're just on that same wavelength. Yeah. So pull out your you pull out your. Uh, your thongs, your VB stubbies. And just again, to clarify for any international listeners, thongs are for us, things you wear on your feet. Yeah. Like flip, I think Americans call them flip-flops. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which when you think about it is a much better name because Americans, that's the noise they yeah, make. But they uh, flip-flop. Everything in America apparently is just like that. Like abbreviation is like the sound it makes or like a really stupid thing, what it looks like. I can't think of any more examples. Yeah. For oh, like us, the, it's like servo. freezer box? Is that what they call an esky? Freezer box. I think an esky is called... Like I think that's called a, a cooler. cooler. box or a freezer box or something. A freezer or a cooler. I think it's just called yeah. a cooler. But we just love to call things absurd things. We're like, yeah, that square thing that you put drinks in, let's call that... Oh, but it might, like an Eskimo, I guess. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's not that I don't know if either. that's exactly why it, it's called that. Probably. Also, like clockwork, yeah. the cats are going mental. But they've started attacking the couch now, which it's is okay, a new as long thing. as it's not my head. Yeah. Um, um, but so yeah, yeah, whip out cool. your thongs, whip out your stubbies. Yeah, and your, any, uh, I guess, your for, tinny. for any international listeners, if we have any... Uh, Chuck your shrimps on the barbie. If we have any Australian slang or lingo that we, we come across, we might try and explain it for y'all, I guess. Apparently, I learned today that you know how when, if you were going to ask someone, like, if, say you're picking someone up, like you're traveling somewhere together yeah. and you're going to pick them up on the way and you might send them a text to see how they're going, mm-hmm. getting ready, going, how are you traveling? Like, how are you traveling? Yeah. Apparently, that's not a thing in other countries. It's very confusing. Really? It's like an Australian thing to be like, how are you traveling? Huh. That's really yeah. interesting. 
It's weird things today. like that, like electric kettles that just kind of like throw you off. You're like, wait, other countries don't have this? Yeah, I did find out the switch thing in America is apparently because they have a much lower voltage than us. So it doesn't matter as thing. much that it's... Apparently in America, they don't have switches on their PowerPoints to turn them on and off. Oh, okay. You just apparently plug it it's in. to do with the voltage. Okay. Our voltage in Australia is much higher, so you need to have it turned off. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. As a safety thing, I guess. Yeah, okay. The more you know. My encyclopedic knowledge of electrical things... It's very slim. Um, is basically non-existent. Mm. Also, I've had like a sip of wine and I'm already like, howdy doody, let's get this party started. Speaking of which, I'm going to pull myself a little bit more before I get into my topic. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, that, oh, I mean, to be fair, we that bottle has not been opened this evening because it's almost empty already. It's It was half. Yeah. Um, well, for me, I do have an exciting announcement. This will come out on Friday. Um, so by the time you're, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, it won't be out yet, but I am starting a new podcast, not with Tama, with one of my good friends. We're doing a horror movie review podcast. It's called The Little Show of Horrors. We're very excited. Um, yeah, it's going to be, we're hoping it's going to be good. We have like a set format of how we're going to do it that we're like hoping is is funny and entertaining and flows well so yeah that should be out sometime we're recording our first episode this sunday so the episode depending on how quickly i can get the distribution set up and the podcast artwork done and editing hopefully next week cool next week i might also have the episodes come out friday just because then it's just easier in my brain space yeah space it out friday is podcast day yeah yeah that would be i that would all that would make the most sense to be honest but we'll see but yeah little show of horrors keep an eye out i'm sure Mm -hmm. that i'll be doing some cross promotion when it is eventually out Mm. and yeah um who are you talking about today tama so as as we were saying our episode this this week is all about australian um well, murder it's mysteries. the Aussie edition. Um, so this one I actually stumbled across when we were doing our um, our mini episode about uh, Aboriginal and Indigenous Australians' deaths in custody um, when I was talking about TJ Hickey. So one of the officers that was involved with everything that happened with that whole incident, unfortunate incident, one of the Aboriginal li- liaison officers who never actually saw the crime take place, he was one of two um, ACLOs, as they referred to, Aboriginal community liaison officers, that disputed the claims that he, TJ Dickey, was murdered by the police officers while they were pursuing him. So... Already, he and this is without him even stepping foot on the crime scene. So this is already yeah, you can definitely make that sort of call. Yeah, exactly. Already a bit of a piece of shit, right? So I was, I was learning all about this unfortunate case of TJ, and I stumbled. I literally stumbled across this man and this almost novel-like story about these series of crimes and it's just it's fucking so bizarre 
and the research for it is was so extensive because there's only a few articles about it because it happened um a lot of it happened around 2003 to 2009 right so the articles were only really it, it, there weren't not a lot of them were being digitalized if that makes sense yeah it was mostly tv coverage and newspapers they've converted some of them to like pdfs and online articles but it's been a fucking struggle to find all the information for this i can tell you that so the whole what i'm going to go into is a bit manic in a sense so we're not gonna i'm not gonna be doing my typical like we're gonna deep dive into their early childhood and where they were born and what their childhood was like because it's all very um based on who was in was involved and who they interviewed and who they right talked to essentially so there's a lot of different people involved in this whole thing namely it's um paul wilkinson himself who is obviously the murderer and the the man in question in this case but he had a wife julie and there's another woman who is in this equation like a love triangle called kylie and these all come from different aspects of people that were involved with with paul people were involved with julie and people involved with kylie okay so it's going to be coming so it's basically like, like eyewitness yeah it's like what we've gathered from his confession what we've gathered from from what Julie's said and what she's coincided with police reports yeah and then what kylie's family has provided in the in the, in the case okay so it it kind of comes it'll come in sections and um it'll be a bit different a different structure this time so as i was saying he paul was wilkinson was a um aclo an australia aboriginal community liaison officer incidentally um lost his job somewhat sometime during this whole saga for Mm -hmm. incompetence he was just a very shit worker apparently love that um i vibe with that yeah completely honest so Julie and I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to pronounce her last name, but it's Julie Therect, I believe. Um, it's like a, a Dutch last name, I guess, like a Therect. She began a relationship with Wilkinson when she was a trainee at the police academy. Um, within their relationship, some time in, Wilkinson convinces her to abandon her her ambition to become a police officer, saying that if she became one she would have more power than him at home. Cute. And so she happily obliges giving up her dream of becoming a police officer. Therex says that he was a controlling man, but was also very charming and funny and had good relationships with his colleagues, many uh, of which were Redfern officers that he was in the same um, uh, precinct in. Yeah. And a lot of them attended their wedding in 2003. Oh, so this is really recent. Why did I think this was like in the 80s? No, this is like super recent. This is within the 2000s. Right. Okay, cool. So in November of 2003, that year, um, Julie Therak gave birth. And when she was discharged from hospital, Wilkinson took her to her parents' home and insisted that she stay there for much, for up to around the next five months. He told her that their lives were in danger for various reasons connected to his work as a police officer. So this comes in November and 
this is coming from the incident in February when the death of Thomas T.J. Hickey, whom he claimed was a relative of his, sparked the Redfern riots. Right. So he claimed T.J. was a relative of his. Yeah. And he tells her that they're at risk because he knows about the real cause of Hickey's death. Huh. So he puts her in essentially hiding with his mother-in-law, her mother. Okay. With their newly born child. All right. So I did a bit of digging and it's, it's, he's a pathological liar, essentially. Love so it. it's a lot of like a hard to interpret whether or not he's bullshitting or he actually knew the real reason why he, TJ Hickey died. Well, he probably would have because yeah. he knew, he would have known that. He just, he just proved any you know. claims that the police officers murdered TJ. So it's. It's a fair assumption to say that he could have known exactly what was going on, but yeah. he chose to support the New South Wales Police Commission in that time. That's really interesting. It makes you wonder if when he said their lives were in danger, if he meant by other policemen. Here's the fun thing about that. Oh, okay. So... Was I onto something there? You were onto something. <laughs> well, uh, wait, what did you say again? I said that he thought his life was in danger from other police officers not wanting him to testify against them no so you weren't on you weren't on to something but you're in the right you're in the right headset of oh but actually so wilkinson went to considerable lengths to support these claims of death threats and their lives being in danger so he would he he would provide uh threatening letters that he claimed had been placed under his car's windshield wiper at, at work and put into the letterbox so police later determined that these had been written by a woman named Kylie Labashadere. Very hard name for nuts. So when Threk insisted on coming home, she found one of her child's teddy bears pinned to a wall with a sharp knife stabbed through its throat. Oh, that's terrifying. Also, with, where is that? Where? Why is there a plane? I don't know. Where are people we never flying? Hear planes. Yeah. But also, it's, there are not supposed to be any planes. A lot like, of it's where cargo. Where are you going, babe? I think it's cargo. Oh, yeah, out. fair enough. Okay, continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, there's a, a bear with a knife stuck through its throat pinned to the wall. Cute. With a note saying, bye-bye, baby, and the Rex baby's name next to it. Oh, that's not cool. Don't yeah. do that. So Don't bring the baby into it. Here's the thing about this. Wilkinson and Kylie, who we later discover were having an affair together, okay, fabricated this entire thing. Oh, to get her out of the house. To get her out of the house uh. so they could spend time together. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're time to dead me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's the cat going, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Okay, so I want to get into Kylie. So okay, Kylie. <laughs> Can you rephrase that? I, I want to get, get into Kylie. That would be very disgusting and very disrespectful. Exactly. So I'm saying, can you please rephrase it? Let's. Jump. I would like to jump into the backstory of Kylie. Okay. So no. Yeah, no, it was a very good. Okay. That was a very good way to put it. Thank you. So, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> Do you know how many times 
you say, here's the thing. And it just makes me think of that thing from Friends where it's like, okay, so here's the thing. Okay, so the thing is, so the thing with the thing, <laughs> every time you do it, here's the thing. You have to say it in that accent from Here's now the on. thing. Okay, so we're going to, Kylie's last name, which I'm going to try and pronounce for the life of me. No judgment. La, La Bachadere. I, being an expert in linguistics, I'm going to say that is correct. Fantastic. So, Saturday 8th of May 2004, John Edwards, father of three children all in their 20s at this stage, receives a call from one of his sons, Michael. Michael tells John that their sister and his daughter, Kylie, has been missing for about a week. Uh, since she so has been missing since she's gone away a week earlier to quote stay with friends. Okay, Kylie at this stage is twenty three years of age. She had been a mystery to her family. for For her to stay away without telling them was nothing too unusual for the kind of person she was. Right. And until recently, she had been married and living in Sydney with her family knowing very little about her life there. And I found out apparently she was living in a townhouse in Sylvania. Just to give you a a full they synopsis. have townhouses in Sylvania? They did in 2003. Okay. I think they still do. I don't know. It's uh, Sylvania is a very like drive-through kind of place. I don't know. To me, townhouses scream like the inner west. Yeah. They have townhouses everywhere. Oh, okay. Maybe I don't know what a town... Do I? What's a townhouse? Like the ones in Newtown, but like next to each other. Like they merge into each other. Right. Do they have them everywhere? Yeah. I that was like a the, city thing. No, they have those everywhere. Oh, like the huge, there you go. Yeah. So... Weeks before disappearing, she had walked out on her husband, Sean LaBachadere, and also on the nursing course she'd, been, she'd started to then live with her grandmother, Louisa, who lives in Arena. Or Arena, sorry. Yeah, Arena. Central Coast. Arena. Yeah. Sorry. So, keep that that suburb in mind, Arena. Okay. Right? That's a very... I grew up there, so it's very yeah, easy exactly. to Yeah, exactly. So this in. is a very interesting... Okay. This is why I was kind of like, oh, fuck, Laura. Yeah. I... Were... Or we would have just moved. Really? 2003. Shit. I was 10 when we moved, so we would have just moved. So that this is why I was, like, very keen on telling the story. Cause okay. Because there's a little minuscule part of it that relates to... Me. Places that we've grown, we've grown up. Right. Okay. Right. Like, for me, I lived in Sylvania for a very small amount of time. Yeah. And some of the stuff happens in the Shire. So, she moves to Erina with her grandmother, Louisa. When she leaves, she doesn't say who she's going to be staying with or for how long. And this was apparently very fitting of her character. So, her grandmother believed that she had a new man in her life. Kylie had been planning to take the train to Moree by train... Uh, so to, sorry, I've she'd been fucked. planning to take the train by, by train. train. <laughs> she'd been planning to take a train to Moree that morning with an uncle and aunt to attend a cousin's engagement party. The relatives eventually caught up Louisa, telling her that Kylie had not turned up to Central, which is where they were switching. Switching, yeah. Uh, apparently, saying that she missed the train despite buying a ticket weeks ago. Now, this was very abnormal behavior, and this along with the amount of time that had now passed without any communication, was why Michael decided to call his father. 
Okay. So John, the father, is 51 in 2004. He's an ex-soldier, still fit, relatively healthy. And since leaving the army, he has held responsible positions, ran businesses, and dealt with crises and people under pressure. He loved... Sorry. Sorry, can I just quickly clarify? Yes. Just to make sure I'm keeping up. Mm-hmm. Michael is the guy we're discussing. No. No. Michael's Who's Michael? Michael's Kylie's relative. Okay, brother. sorry. Continue. Right, right. I'm on the same page. Yeah. The guy we're talking about is not Michael. He's Paul. Okay. Right. Sorry. Um, Keep going. My bad. Okay. So, yeah, he's a relatively healthy man. Um, he's ex-military. He he loved his daughter and was fully aware of her private and separated nature and her sometimes headstrong behavior. But the situation was enough to make him very uneasy, and he decides to drive it to Erina to talk to other members of his or the family to obtain more information. So in the army, John actually worked at uh, Victoria Barracks in a top secret job in communications. So he was very Mm. well versed and very. He, he said he was the fucking man for this job, mm. basically. This I was do like, not have money, hmm. but I have a very special set of skills. I will find you, and I will kill you. I will find you, period. Okay. So just before, uh, to give you some little uh, pretense to Kylie's life, before she turned five, John and Kylie's mother, Carol, had separated, and before long, Carol took up with another man named Robert McCann, who had a history of violence and was a known criminal. So at some point during this stage in their lives, the children had gone to gone off to live with their grandmother, but they continued to see um, their mother and McCann from time to time. Mm-hmm. Before long, McCann was hitting Carol, and an officer from the Department of Community Services, or DOCS for people in Australia, um, found out and said the department would remove her children if she stayed with him because of the danger he posed to them. So Carol felt that she was being forced to choose between her children and the man that he she loved. So she felt like she'd been pushed around all her life and was now finally found a chance of happiness and someone wanted to take it away from her. So what does she do? She chooses the man. She abandoned the children who then went to live with grandmother Louisa. In early 1986, Michael, Leanne, and Kylie, aged 11, 9, and 6, went to live with their grandparents in Villawood. John had been surprised with Kylie's desire to want to leave her husband later on in life. One Christmas Eve, he he recalls, the couple had invited their entire family down to their townhouse in Sylvania for a meal, and as far as John could see, everything had been fine. So, this is absolutely fucking heartbreaking but about halfway through and i just felt like i needed to mention this because it's interesting but about halfway through john's trip to the coast not long before the calga interchange which i don't know if you're aware oh, of. i think i might roughly know it's like a very is. tall bridge uh the the mooney mooney, mooney bridge oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah yeah so it not long after the so calga interchange yeah yeah the broad f- the freeway dips and sweeps across the mooney mooney bridge yeah so, reputedly, it's the tallest bridge in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. So, fun fact about fun that fact. fucking bridge. Right. Whenever we used to have to go um, to the city with my dad, I would be so shit scared to drive <laughs> across that bridge. 
Like as a little kid, I would like it's tall. cry. It's huge. It's so high. And they've got these like big, the big wind socks that are always make it look like yeah. it's just like <clears throat> winds at like 400 miles an hour. And as a child, it scared the living shit it's out of me. It's very, very large. Like mum, because mum has recently started listening to our show. Shout Hello, out Judy. to my mum. Mum, if you're listening, you'll know the bridge and how scared I used to be of driving across that bridge. Mm. It used to terrify me. Continue. So years later, this uh, bridge and the and the cargo interchange. Uh, this, this, sorry, this bridge, just this bridge, would um, turn out to be linked to evidence around Kylie's disappearance. Oh, it's even possible. Oh. It's even possible that John drove over his daughter's grave seventy five meters below <gasps> on his way north that day, although the, the grave has never actually literally been found. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So, the we're talking about the affair between Paul Wilkinson and Kylie Lepichardere. Yeah. So this began in late 2003, not long after he was a patient at Sutherland Hospital. I believe he met her at the hospital. At the hospital, regarding um, their her his son that um he he had with his his wife. Right. So, soon after he's in this hospital, he, he re-meets re her. They, they talk. They, they get to talking. And they form a relationship where they start uh, an affair and cheating on their respective partners either way. So, they're both married. So, he was a 27-year-old, four years older than her, and they were both, at this time, cheating on their spouses. Wilkinson lured Kylie by pretending to be doing important undercover work in the police force, which, as we all know, was not fucking true at all. And he's a pathological liar. Yeah. So he he led a very rich fucking make-believe life. He told everyone whatever the fuck he wanted to. So he had this, he had this whole elaborate scheme of, like, I'm this guy... These are my lies. Yeah, to I'm amazing anyone. and exciting. Yeah, to anyone he ever met. And Kali was no exception. And reportedly, uh, according to her, her other sister and the, and the the last of the three siblings that I was referring to, um, Leanne, she couldn't hear the alarm bells ringing in regards to this relationship mm. when he would be reportedly lying and lying and lying. Yeah, because he probably sounded like this awesome yeah. dude. Which I personally believe relates to her troubling childhood mm. with an abusive stepfather. Okay. She had daddy issues. Yeah. yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. She, she was separated from her father at a young age. Yeah. Like um, that's I, That sounds like I'm like Bleeding. No, but that's just. But like she was so she was her parents up, split up. She lives with her mom. Her mom yeah. re has a new relationship. That new relationship. Yeah, so she's searching for this like strong male, well, person. abusive father yeah. and abandonment issues from her mother abandoning her yeah. to live with her grandparents. So like you know she's twenty three years old. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough thing. So she had failed to become pregnant with her husband. Sean LeBachardere, which we've talked about before, he was a Navy sailor and she wanted more than anything to become pregnant and have a child. 
So her father theorized that this was a major factor in her wanting to seek a relationship out with Wilkinson. She thought that maybe he could provide her with a family. Fill her womb. Yeah, literally. So before long, he and Kylie were exchanging 184 calls and text messages. If you say a day. Day. How? A day. There were only 24 hours in a day. In early 2004. She was head over heels in love and demanded that he leave his wife to be with her. And he refused on the grounds that he was devoted to his son. How do you even find the hours? Do you want to know a fucked up fact? In a day. So, on up until Kylie's disappearance, the phone records showed and discovered that 28,836 texts and calls between the pair had gone between the pair in the past four months. Jesus. So to give you some perspective, that's more than once every 10 minutes, every hour of every day. Which means it's technically would be more than once every 10 minutes because they're not going to be awake every no. hour of every day. But essentially they're texting and calling 24-7. Constantly when they're awake. 24-7. Yeah. So they'd literally be constant when they're awake. Yes, exactly. Jesus. Um. So... As I was saying before, he refused to leave his wife on grounds that he had a family and he had a son. But on April 13th, 2004, Kylie learned that she was pregnant with Wilkinson's child. Ooh, okay. And this increased the pressure for her to tell him to leave his family. So Paul told Kylie that he would leave his family and move with her to Dubbo. So she began to sell some of her belongings and she had removalists take her items to Dubbo. Yeah. She was excited, reportedly very, very excited. Now, we move from April 13 when she learns that she's pregnant to April 28, 2004. Okay. The last time that Kylie is seen alive. Okay. So... Going off of back to the um, the calls and texts that they discovered from Kylie's uh, from uh, Wilkinson's phone, they also saw by looking at and tapping into these phones. Sorry, they looked into the locations of the mobile phone towers she had been near when she sent a text. That on the day that she had disappeared, she had travelled from her home in in Erina to Sutherland Railway Station near Wilkinson's home. Mm-hmm. So. She has gone from Erina, wherever said she's been living with her grandma. Mm. I th- believe this was around... It'd be this, about a two-hour drive. This was the same time where she was reportedly supposed to be meeting her uncle and auntie. For the engagement party. The engagement party. Yeah. So, the phone records show that she left home after not long after 8.15pm and had traveled to sorry wilkinson's phone had shown that he had left home around 8 15 and had driven to sutherland and this perfectly matches up with when her train would have come into sutherland okay so she reportedly had twenty five thousand dollars with her at the time and still stopped off to an atm local atm to withdraw more money up in erina and this is where the last images are seen of her alive okay on the cctv, CCTV footage yeah, yeah. After that, there was no more phone communication between them and Kylie's phone was not used again ever. 
And it's clear from this text pattern that Wilkinson had almost certainly killed Kylie, but police had no other evidence besides this. So crime scene her body have never been found to this day. Oh, that's sad. Police began to tap Wilkinson's phone and recorded a series of bizarre texts. Days after her disappearance, there was a fire at Wilkinson's home, who Wilkinson claims was started by Kylie, who wanted revenge after he rejected her sexual advances. Right. When in reality, it's heavily thought that this was to burn evidence and to throw a red herring to Ah. the fact that she's still alive. So these police are looking for her, thinking she's not using her phone because she's in hiding. Or she dead. Mm-hmm. Mm, all right, we love a good red herring. Yeah. So, uh, the police uh, continue to tap his phone and look through his texts, and this is then increased after he he Wilkinson goes to pol- the Police Integrity Commission and announces that he had been forced to help Jeff Lowe, a police sergeant, kill Kylie in the Royal National Park. Jeff Lowe, why do I recognize that name? I, I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing, but I don't think there's any connection at all. Okay. Um, I don't think, I think it's, there's something to do with that Lowe name that like rings a bell as well. <clears throat> so, I'm going to go into a bit. Oh, I what? know why. It's why? Jeff Lowe. He's the guy from Tiger King. Oh, yeah. That's why it rings a bell. This is a different job. So they wouldn't be connected at all, but that's why it's... That's why it's ringing a bell. Yeah. So to get into Jeff Lowe a little bit, upon reflecting on her marriage, um, Turek had said, and this is a direct quote, in the beginning he was loving and had had a lot of good qualities, but he had a shocking temper and hit me at times. He was very controlling. I wasn't allowed to have any male friends and he tried to alienate me from a lot of my female friends. One of his best friends told me, with women, Paul turns into on, turns on the charm and when he's got them, he the claws come out. Mm. So, this police officer in, in question, Lowe, he's one of the police officers that agreed to talk about Wilkinson when okay. police were interested in Wilkinson. Yeah. And Wilkinson has a preconceived hatred towards Lowe. In January 2001, well before Lowe and Tarek married other people, they had a brief fling. And this is before Tarek and Wilkinson met. Yeah, right. So completely innocent. Completely innocent. Just before they ever met. And before they ever got married, respectively. Yeah. And after Tarek began her relationship with Wilkinson, he soon learned about Lowe and became incredibly jealous and tried without success to persuade Tarek to tell police she she had been raped by Lowe and to fabricate diary entries supporting this. Oh my God. In October 2004, Lowe helped colleagues arrest Wilkinson who was drunk outside. Guess? Guess where? Ingerdine Mackers? No. Oh. Close? I don't know. This is the place we've been to before. Ingerdine RSL? Yes! Yay! Outside Ingerdine RSL. If it had been the same place that Scotty from Marketing shit his pants, that just would have been... No. Beautiful. In 2004, I was living in Ingerdine. <gasps> 
You were. I was living in England. So your parents probably know about this. I, ta- I called my mum today. She knew fucking nothing about this. Oh, okay. You'll have to link her to this No episode. one knows about this story. It's crazy. Wow. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. I'm so, so excited because I feel like I have a weird personal I, connection I know. I know. To How it. fucking weird is it? So Ingrid and RSL, where I've eaten with my family before, <laughs> Wilkinson accused him, Wilkinson, uh, accused Lowe of rape in front of a number of people. Then a year later, in March 2005, Wilkinson and Turek found themselves waiting at traffic lights next to Lowe. Wilkinson complained to police that Lowe had threatened them while there was an investigation, which uh, in- concluded that Turek refused, w- when Turek conclu- uh, refused to support Wilkinson's versions of what had happened. Mm. Later on in 2005, Lowe also learned that he was under investigation again because police had been told that he was a major drug dealer. Don't you love that? Yeah. Someone's just being like, ah, uh, yeah, so uh, he's a he's a rapist. Yep. And that one falls through. He's like, he... Uh, Threatened me. He, he, does, drugs. he does drugs. That just makes me think of that scene from Friends. Yep. He, so, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a tap dancer. <laughs> oh, you could say Drug he's dealing a tapsers. lost, lost art from. He has, a, he has a dog that barks through the night. He's a pimp. <laughs> yeah, he's a pimp. <laughs> He's a big tap dancing pimp. So again, later on again in 2005, Lowe's wife meets Julie Turek purely by chance Ooh, at a okay. nightclub. And the next day, Turek comes to their house, hands them a copy of an allegation Wilkinson had given the police integrity commission, claiming that Lowe was the killer of Kyrie Labashadere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go back to where I was then because that was just a bit of a... I'm going to go back to where I was. To back up where I was then. before I got into low because I that, that that's kind of like... Yeah, yeah, thing yeah. it's like a little, it's a little side yeah. story. <clears throat> um, so, in, in the end... Uh, sorry, no, actually, you know what? I will go. I'll, I'll finish off what I, what I have about low. So... He he finds out that Wilkinson has been lying about him, and Lowe is soon then cleared of all allegations. Um, but it was a long process and a long, very trying process. Meanwhile, as a free man, Wilkinson, who ha- hadn't been charged until April 2007, was living in a nearby suburb. Lowe learned that from Detective Constable Glenn Smith, who investigated Labashadere's murder, that Wilkinson had been following his wife. Oh, that's creepy. Lowe had made numerous complaints to his superiors about the harassment by Wilkinson and believes he didn't receive a single inch of support that he deserved. So just a quick question. Is Wilkinson still an acting police officer at this stage? Do you know? That was one of the things I couldn't figure out. Okay. Like I said, that's creepy. Like I said, is. this is a very yeah buried okay. topic. Yeah. So each individual, th- I was trying to figure out if he was still in prison. I don't know. I'm pretty sure he is, but I can't Why? find out. Creepy. Yeah. That's weird that it's so recent and there's. I so, know. Yeah. There's nothing about it. Okay. Cool. Keep going. Okay. <clears throat> I'm invested now. So, uh, Lo and his wife. 
because they don't they're not receiving any help from the police take evasive actions which includes them changing their cars their phones they alter their travel habits they move house and eventually they flee sydney to the north of the state so like Mm. coffs harbor area i'm guessing so he said that to this day um because of the effects that wilkinson's actions had on his life what his wife eventually left him she took their son with her and his chances of a promotion in the as a police officer was completely destroyed. He went on stress leave soon after and is still to this day seeing a psychologist. As you would. Yeah. Because I feel like that paranoia from someone following you, yeah. even when that person's in jail, it would never quite 100%. leave you. So in 2009, Jeff Lowe decides to leave the police force and he had, been a, he had been a cop for 25 years. His family members are on the force and he loves the job, but Paul Wilkinson completely destroyed his life. Yeah. Um, That's sad. And a quick side note, I was watching this video that someone uploaded on YouTube. Uh, uh, it was a interview with the family of Kylie, okay, the victim. Mm. <clears throat> and I went to the comment section. Julie commented in the comment section. No. Yeah. Are you, sh- are you sure it's actually her, though? I'm guessing. It. It's a very... Yeah. Um, I mean, it could be very fake. Here's the thing. The video has a thousand views right and she has one like on one of the comments so what's the incentive to make it up i mean someone could have thought that they'd get heaps of views mm. and stuff i don't know the internet i'm not saying it's not her i'm just saying the internet is a but here's the thing also place. it's from eight years ago yeah so it fits the time period yeah yeah true anyway the the things that is written just doesn't seem like someone making it up either yeah everything about when you look at the comments it's just everything about it screams this is a real person okay yeah the the the, the way she writes so one of the comments she writes was and to give you some context the video is about the family explaining about kylie what they remember about her what they loved about her talking about how she was a good person and a kind person julie writes and i quote there are always more sides to any story told. As for Kylie, always caring for others, which her mother said was in her nature, I beg to differ when it was her writing death threats to myself and my baby son. Yes, she didn't deserve to die and her family don't deserve what Paul put them through, but my son and I do not deserve what both Paul and Kylie put us through. No, I am not a house <laughs> If you have to clarify you're not, it means you are. She continues. She wrote death threats to my newborn baby and I. Yes, Paul deserved what he got, but she also made my life hell. I beg to differ about her being caring as a caring person, especially a woman, would not write death threats to a baby. And the police proved that they were written by her, so there is no arguments with who wrote them. Pretty screwed up, if you ask me. Jesus. Yeah. It doesn't get more Australian than that. No. Especially the Hauso comment. Yeah. I'm not a Hauso. You can just tell if that actually is her. She's like chucked back a few glasses of shardy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay. So, in the end, Wilkinson sent police to about five different places in the search of Kylie's body after his arrest. Mm-hmm. Right? 
and I'll get into that a little bit later because I want to get into how they how they caught him. In 2006, police still didn't have enough to convict Wilkinson. And remember, he was caught in 2007. I just went my throat. So an undercover officer tried to befriend him by pretending he was making a film about police corruption and offered to pay him information about where, according to Wilkinson, Lowe had buried Kylie. This produced, unfortunately, no results. Mm. Although... Wilkinson did text the officer one day, and I quote, If I may ask a favor, may receive $2,000 today to escape my on my return. Dot, 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 body location and full story, you keep the agreed $15,000. I'll expose all. I'm desperate chap to get away. So by this time, Julie had already divorced Wilkinson, but they still kept in touch. And one day, she asked why he wouldn't tell the police where Kylie was buried. And Ooh. he replied with what is now the most notorious text that they have ever uncovered. Yeah. And I'm going to quote, Everybody has reasons for hiding a crime. Mine is the family can live not knowing where and why for what they have done. Call me cruel call me nasty, and yes, I'd agree. However, my knowledge isn't going to be theirs. Her family can live their lives in misery for all I care. Fuck them. Jesus. Like, what did the family ever do? Like, you already murdered Kylie. Like, what did the family do We've established you? this guy's a fucking psychopath. Yeah, that's very true. So, the two detectives that were in charge with chasing Wilkinson... Glenn Smith and Rebecca Craig. They thought they had enough to charge him because they now had evidence that Kyle, that Kylie had believed when she were, went to meet Wilkinson in 2004 that they were going to move away to Dubbo. Yeah. Because that's what he had told her. But the first lawyer who looked at the case at the office of the Director of Public Prosecutions said the the police case was too weak. One problem was that there was no evidence Wilkinson had really planned to go away with Kylie. So the the decision was due to be reviewed by a more senior lawyer and on the Sunday before the meeting, Smith, Glenn Smith, who's one of the detectives, went into the office in one last desperate search for evidence. To his surprise... In the evidence locker, he found a second mobile that had once belonged to Kylie. Ooh. It had been discovered before he joined the investigation. He had never heard of it. He gained access to the phone, and he discovered some text that she had received from Wilkinson. A week after Kylie had told him that she was pregnant, he had sent her this message, and I quote, Today and Wednesday, then it's D.B., you and I are together forever. Creepy. At the meeting, the senior lawyer said to Smith, So why haven't you charged him yet? 2009, Paul Wilkinson was sentenced to a minimum of 24 years in jail for the murder of Kylie Bouchardaray. The sentence longer than it would have been uh, had he otherwise disclose where he had buried the body 
Ah. But he didn't. And to this day, still has not. That's so sad. That's so horrible for her poor family. Exactly. The To make it worse, he took them on a wild goose chase. In their, I think it was around four or five times. And cost the department $200,000. Jesus. Just... It, yeah, five different places in search of Kylie's body. Did did he ever provide any details on what had actually happened? So he, and again, take this with a grain of salt because yeah. this is a, 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 a liar. A, yeah. A, 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 a liar. So he reportedly told police that he grabbed Kylie by the throat. There was a struggle and then she lost consciousness and died. He then buried her with a shovel and That's threw such a weird way of saying I strangled someone. Yeah. I grabbed her by the throat and she lost consciousness. Well, when you watch the interview, they ask him, like, what happened? And he's like, I grabbed her by the throat. And they're like, was there a struggle? He's like, yeah, there was fighting. But you know that thing where you watch videos where um, someone who studies facial movements mm. tells you when someone, like, does this with their eyes, yeah. they're lying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that thing where it's like when you're recollecting a memory, you kind of look down to your... I think it was you look down to your left. I think it's you look up to your left. Up to your left when you're thinking about... Yeah. Yeah. So he's looking down to his right, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's... Yeah, I literally just <coughs> did it there without meaning yeah. to. <laughs> up to the left. But I think when you're lying... It's like you either look down to your left or look down to your right. Yeah, because when you think about it, if someone said, oh, what was that girl's name? You'd be like, um, you look up to yeah. the left. It's like, I think I read somewhere that it's literally like a weird psychological link between it's something that that area is where you store yeah. memories and it's like literally a psychological link to you like looking to that space. But essentially he's, so he's recalling lying. these details but when he says like certain things, his eyes go from like, and you obviously can't see this as an audio listener, but his eyes are going from like looking down to the table. And when he says like a detail, like an important detail, his eyes flick it down to the right. Right. Bottom. So he's probably. It's lying. very like, you know, a very like possibility. Like yeah. there's no like card hitting evidence that he was lying, but. He's a pathological liar and there's that yeah. obvious thing. <clears throat> so they so he's arrested. Uh he will not disclose where he has hidden the body. Um he reportedly told police officers that he he strangled her and buried her with a shovel and threw the shovel down into the river. So um that's pretty much all I have written. I, I had a little bit about um, going further into a few other details, but it's not all. Not it's not like um, essential. But um, yeah, that's essentially it. Wow, it's fucking tense. So that's crazy, crazy that like I don't remember. So he was arrested in two thousand nine. Yeah, two thousand nine. I think he was arrested in two thousand eight, maybe early two thousand nine, yeah. and then uh, was was sentenced to a minimum of 24 years in jail in 2009. I think he might have been arrested in 2007 and then was awaiting trial and then trial in 2009. I think that's what happened. Wow. Um, And what's what's crazy is when his wife separated from him, she kept in contact with him um, and eventually 
started working with the feds yeah to provide them with information about him yeah wow so Fuck. she knew for about 2 years that he was a murderer but still couldn't yeah. show that side to him wow that was a good one it's fucking crazy that dude that had a lot of twists and turns see what i mean there's arson there's murder there's a love triangle there's adultery yeah Got everything. All the all the good makings of an Italian novella. Yeah, really. Telenovela. Telenovela. Yeah, that's the word. Italian novella. Um. All right. I feel like this episode's going to be a long one because yours was quite long, and I think mine's going to be quite long as well. Oh well, if it oh, is. Oh, we always so say this, it. and then we watch it, and it's yeah. the same length. <laughs> we'll see. I think it just feels long when you're doing it. <laughs> it does. It feels um, like ages. All right. Well, today I'm going to be talking about. Arguably one of the best known, like, odd, iconic pop culture sayings, I think. Yes. You know it if you know the story. You know it if you don't know the story. People in other countries know it. Yeah, international people would definitely know it. A dingo ate my baby or a dingo stole my baby. Dingo stole my baby. A dingo stole my baby, which is the death of Azaria Chamberlain and the conviction of her mother... Lindy Chamberlain of her murder. Mm-hmm. So I've got, I mean, her backstory is not that exciting because it was very, very normal. Um, but I've noted down the basics. So her real name is Alice Lynn, known as Lindy. She was actually born in New Zealand in 1948. Oh, New Zealand. And from what I can see, she had a really normal upbringing. Her family and herself were members of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, In November 1969, she was married to Michael Chamberlain, who at the time was a pastor at the Adventist Church. And for the first five years of their marriage, they they lived in Tasmania until later moving to Mount Isa. So in the 70s, the Chamberlains have two sons, Aidan and Reagan. And in 1980, their first daughter, Azaria, was born. So just to kind of set the tone for what actually makes up a big part of the case is the at the time that they go on the trip when all this happens Michael is serving as a minister at Mount Isa's Seven Day Adventist Church which is a denomination of Christianity that I feel is either incredibly misunderstood or people don't know what the fuck it is. Like, I honestly can say I don't know what Seven-day Adventist actually is. I know out. it's a dom- denomination of Christianity. Quick um, shout-out to our past episode with David Koresh. Oh, was that Seven-day Adventist as well? I'm pretty sure it was, yeah. Like, I think his family was Seven-day... Oh, I think day- he started as yeah. a Seven-day Adventist. And then it, he, yeah. his thing derived from that church. Yeah, so especially back in the 80s, it was a denomination of the church that really people didn't understand... Mm. Um, and was very misunderstood. So um, when Azaria is two months old, the family goes on a camping trip to Uluru, which for our international listeners, Uluru, if you don't know what it is, is a really famous, it's called a monolith. It's basically a really big rock. It's It's literally in the center of Australia. It's a huge, it's like 368 meters high. It's beautiful, made of red rock. It's a very sacred indigenous spot. Um, You used to be able to climb it, um, you can't anymore. Out of respect. To out of the respect to the indigenous, indigenous people of Australia. Um, so they go on a camping trip to Uluru because you can still camp around the base of it as well. Yeah. So they set off from their home in Mount Isa and drive out to 
Buluru. At this stage, Lindy and Michael have been married for 10 years and they've got three kids and they're obviously really excited to have a nice family holiday. Mm -hmm. So on the 17th, um, sorry, they arrive late on the evening of the 16th of August, 1980. So they arrive at Uluru on the 16th of August. On the 17th, Michael and his two sons climb portions of the rock while Lindy takes baby Azaria and goes to explore a formation called the Fertility Cave. She tells prosecutors that day that as she goes to leave the cave, she looks up to see a dingo staring at her and she's quoted as saying that the wild dog was, quote, casing the baby. Um, Again, for any international people who don't know what a dingo is, it's essentially a wild dog, but they're incredibly untamed, Mm. quite vicious. Um, Kind of like a cross between a fox and a wolf, I guess. Yeah, actually, that's quite a good... Like a, like, Analogy. A, like a desert wolf. Yeah, like a desert wolf. So after the sun sets, the family gathers with other campers around the barbecue area where they're all camping. Lindy still has Azaria at this stage and they're all chatting. There are two other campers, Greg and Sally Lowe, who are another young couple who are also vacationing with their baby. At around 8pm, Sally goes to the rubbish bin to dispose of some of their scraps from dinner and turns around to see a dingo following her. Shortly after, Michael Chamberlain is encouraging his sons to toss bread crust to a dingo that's appeared near the barbecue area, and Lindy advises that they sh- really shouldn't be encouraging the dogs to stick around. Yeah. So shortly after, Lindy announces it's time to put Bubby down. I'm assuming that this is from statements from other travellers because it was a direct quote. Lindy goes back to the tent and puts the baby to sleep. Ten minutes later, she comes back. Azaria is asleep with her brother Reagan in the tent. And Lindy rejoins the camp. So keeping in mind that at this time, Lindy's only 32. So she's probably stoked. Baby's gone to bed. There's another young couple that's their age. They're at this beautiful place having a campfire. They're probably having the time of their life. And Mm -hmm. she just wants to chill out. However, shortly after coming back, they hear a baby's cry. Lindy rushes back to the tent to investigate and shortly after that that famous saying my god my god the dingo's got my baby is heard by the others around the fire so Frank Morris is the first investigator to arrive on the scene that night they get there pretty quick and this part is quite important when he arrives he shines a torch across the tent floor and notices blood on one of the rugs and paw prints leading away from the tent entrance Soon other campers arrive. It's still dark, mind you, so they're all out there with torches trying to find Azaria. Nearly 300 men and women form a human chain to look for tracks or pieces of clothing. Michael Chamberlain doesn't join the chain and is quoted as saying, she's probably dead by now. And this is really important because a huge part of the way the media treats the family is the way that they act after Azaria has gone. Which back in the 80s was a very popular thing to judge people saying, well, you're not crying and sad and hysterical, so you must mm. have done it. Which we now know people It's kind of a short-sighted act. thing to say. People, we now know people respond to trauma in incredibly different ways. Yeah, we have a better... can't use it as a judgment. Yeah, we have a better understanding of mental health and yeah. things like that. So... The main search turns up dingo tracks, but nothing more. However, Murray Haby, who breaks away from the big chain, locates some dingo, large dingo tracks and follows them to where he finds a depression in the sand that he says looks like a wild dog has laid something down. Two trackers are called who study and 
who study the impressions rather, noting that it appears to have the imprint of a knitted weave. So they continue to look for more tracks, but they find nothing. So it basically isn't long after this that the Chamberlain story starts to sour in the minds of a lot of people. Yeah. So four men that are first assigned to the case are quoted as over drinks at a pub saying that some don't buy that a dingo has taken the baby. They argue over stories of previous dingo attacks with one man, John Bryson, being quoted as saying, not a chance, never happened before. There's a fact you can't beat, never, ever happened. He then goes so far as to try and disprove that a dingo could carry a five kilo baby in its teeth. He actually brings in a bucket that he weighs and challenges all the officers in the pub to hold it in their mouth for more than a minute. Right. Which is stupid because no way a human jaw has the same strength no, that a, a dog jaw. No, there's a different fucking animal. Like if you've ever seen even just a staffy grab onto that chew toy, there's yeah. no fucking way you are getting that the thing back. The whole point of canine teeth is to dig into something and to hold into it. Yeah. To hook into it. And when you hear something like this and you hear, you hear that the law enforcement assigned to the task already taking sides. Yeah. You know, it's like they're looking for holes in the story rather than looking for clues to help yeah. solve it. And let's just say Australian police are... Not great. Lazy. Yeah. So a week after Azari's disappearance, tourist Wally Goodwin sets out on an expedition to photograph wildflowers around the base of Uluru. While following an animal path, he spots some shredded clothes near a boulder, which turns out to be a torn nappy and a jumpsuit. Mm. And this actually ends up being one of the biggest pieces of evidence that swings the whole case. Right. Um, so he reports the sighting to Constable Morris, who was the very first officer on scene, um, and he comes to collect the evidence. After this, this is where it really kind of starts to go downhill for the Chamberlains. So on August 28th, Detective Sergeant Graham Charwood takes over the investigations from Morris. He pours over the inv- initial investigation and Morris's notes and zeroes in on like weird details that he determines are important. Like they had interviewed a doctor from Azaria's last medical checkup and the doctor had noted that Lindy had the baby all dressed in black. The doctor also at the time said that he was curious about the name Azaria, so he looked it up and in his words discovered that it meant sacrifice in the wilderness. It actually doesn't. It means <laughs> whom God aids, which yeah. is like quite a beautiful name. Yeah, it's lovely. Who the fuck named their child after a sacrifice? Yeah. And the previous investigators also note that the clothes found by the tourists taking photos are near where the like Michael and his two sons had been hiking the day before. Right. The day before Azari's disappearance, sorry. So this is also when people who previously said that they'd seen Lindy holding the baby said, well, actually, we saw her holding a white bundle and we assumed it was a baby, but it could have not been a baby. So around the country, this case takes off. huge. Like the media has an absolute field day with this case. And so labs and wildlife parks all over the country conduct different experiments to test the validity of Lindy's claim and blood, vegetation and hair samples found on Azaria's clothing are all tested. Meanwhile, any dingoes found dead in the Uluru region have their stomachs dissected looking for any human bones or proteins, but nothing's found. Meanwhile, at Cleland Wildlife Park in Adelaide, dingoes are tossed meat 
wrapped in a baby's nappy so that the nappies can be studied to see if the tears are similar to those found on the located okay. nappy. Right. Um, and it's basically from these ridiculously flimsy things that the investigators pretty much give up on finding Azaria and instead focus on building a case against Lindy for oh, murder. Jeez. See, that seems like so much more effort to build up a new case against yeah. them. So, being that there's not much else to do in Australia in the 1980s, <laughs> the media is having a field day with this story. And also back then, I guess the laws about journalism would be very, very yeah weak. So, yeah. they're just basically publishing anything. They're fueling suspicions that the family had sacrificed their baby as part of a religious ceremony. Stories start to come out that the Chamberlains are linked to the Jonestown suicides. Jesus. That... Azaria was killed to atone for the sins of the church that Michael was a pastor for. Um, and then reports and interviews frequently bring up the mother and father's attitudes aren't what they should have been considering that their baby's just tragically been lost. Okay. So on October 1st, 1980, Detective Charwood conducts an hours-long interview with Lindy and Michael. He questions basically the entire timeline from the moment they left their house in Mount Isa to the baby's disappearance. During the interview, Lindy expresses frustration that forensic evidence from the case has been leaked to the press. And Charlwood kind of hones in on this and finds it odd that she's focusing on that. Right. And also he suggests to her that they can hypnotize her to try and get more details from the night oh, that Azaria went missing. Because that's credible. And being a Seventh-day Adventist, Lindy is quoted as responding to this, the church wouldn't allow it and I wouldn't do it. God slew Saul for that. Do you know Saul and the witch of Endor? So to someone who doesn't really understand religion, that comes across as odd. Yeah. So after this, it falls to the magistrate and coroner of um, Alice Springs, Dennis Barrett, to investigate the death further through a coroner's inquest. The first inquiry, and there were more than one, Opens December 16th, 1980, with Ashley McNay laying out the case for human intervention in Azaria's death. He says that there's evidence to suggest that the original clothes were put in place where they were found, not dragged, and that the clothes show signs of having been removed from a baby by another human. McNay questions Lindy, but basically fails to show that she has any motive or want to kill her only daughter. Barrett announces his findings... Barrett being the coroner, that Azaria met her death when attacked by a wild dingo whilst asleep in her family's tent. Neither of her parents were, Barrett found, in any degree whatsoever responsible for her death. However, the oddities with her clothing convince him that the body of Azaria was taken from the possession of the dingo and disposed of by an unknown method, by a person or person's name unknown. Huh, okay. So you'd think that this would lead investigators to be like, Okay, let's that? lay off Lindy, but it does the opposite. In September 1981, they conduct a four-and-a-half-hour search of the Chamberlain's home, seizing over 300 items ranging from clothing, scissors, and, a, and the car that they drove to Uluru. Shit. The detectives tell Lindy that the search is prompted by an expert, James Cameron, who is a British investigator, concludes that going off the baby's clothes, no dingo could have ever been involved. And her comment to this is just the most fucking badass thing, considering you are under the pump for the potential murder of your child. She responds with, 
I didn't know there were any dingo experts in London. <laughs> I'm just like, yes. Uh. So November 1981, the eternal the Attorney General of Northern Territory files a motion to kill the first inquest on newly discovered evidence and pushes for a second inquest over the presence of large quantities of blood found in the Chamberlain's dismantled vehicle. Remember that that I just said. Okay. So the second inquest begins with a new coroner. This time, Coroner Jerry P. Galvin oversees it. The second inquest um, basically states that Lindy took Azaria from the campsite and murdered her in their car, likely with a pair of scissors. So questions are fired at the family, asking if they knew about the presence of blood in their car, asking if they remember cleaning blood off the seats, etc., etc. Biologist Joy Cool testifies that fetal blood is found beneath the passenger seat of the car. And our English dingo expert, James Cameron, (laughs) claims that the tear in Azari's jumpsuit could not have been caused by a dingo and was likely caused by scissors. So all of this... Appears to be enough. The coroner charges Lindy with murder and Michael as an accessory, and then they go to trial. Fuck. So, despite no body, no motive, no witnesses, and no real actual evidence, a now pregnant Lindy Chamberlain starts her trial in September 1982 under Justice James Murhead. Ian Barker opens the case for the prosecution, outwardly stating to the jurors, Azario died very quick because somebody cut her through. The Crown does not venture to suggest any reason or motive for the killing. It is not our part of our case that Mr. Chamberlain had previously shown any ill will towards the child. He calls the dingo story a fanciful lie calculated to conceal the truth. So the Crown calls all these witnesses who actually seem to support the Chamberlain's side of the story more than setting it back yeah of course sally Lowe says lindy had only been gone six to ten minutes the first time because remember she went she left the camp first to put azaria to bed yeah so the prosecution is saying this is the time where she went into the car and slit her throat (sighs) sally is saying she's only been gone six to ten minutes at the most which is a very short space of time take a baby go to the car open the door sit in the seat slit his throat wait for it to bleed out hide it somewhere clean yourself up and then come back and be like oh baby's gone to bed um and she said that she's definitely heard a baby cry a short serious cry before lindy went back to the tent and was reportedly positive that she'd later seen a dingo slink off into the dark okay so others testify that they had never seen the chamberlains cleaning any blood from the car Another says that she definitely heard a dingo growl that same night, and others had said that that same weekend, dingoes had tried to attack their own children. Oh, shit, okay. However, another witness, Amy Whitaker, comments on the odd behaviour of the parents to aid the prosecution. She says shortly after the attack, Michael Chamberlain had appeared at her doorway and announced, a dingo has taken our baby and she is probably dead by now. Whitaker also reported Lindy saying as she tried to comfort her, Whatever happens is God's will. Which, if you've ever met someone who's highly religious, is not unusual They're kind for of them just to say. dumbasses in the sense that... Well, it's not dumbasses. It's just trying to, like, comfort yourself. Well, no, but it's, it's... it's This is God's will and this is the plan that God's had. So they remove themselves from any emotion yeah. and any logic. It's it, The reason I say it's dumb is because you don't think as a human being. You think as a vessel for information. Yeah. You're like... It's God's plan to kill my child. That's fine. 
So she also describes Lindy's Michael, Lindy and Michael as walking alone together into the bush for 15 to 20 minutes, a time during which the prosecution later argues that the Chamberlains may have buried the baby during this time. Ooh, 15 minutes. So the prosecu- prosecution side is relying heavily on the blood in the car to hold up their case. So the defense calls Keith Lenahan, who was a hitchhiker, who'd been picked up by the Chamberlains on their way to Uluru, and he'd been bleeding at the time he'd been picked up. However, the prosecution argues that Keith's blood doesn't have enough height, doesn't have high enough levels of the fetal hemoglobin in his system to be a match for what they find in the car. However, this all starts to change when a slew of forensic experts take the stand. So at this point, the jurors are kind of on the Chamberlain side, and this is where it kind of starts to turn for them. So one expert testifies that the blood on Azari's singlet flowed downwards, suggesting a cut by a sharp instrument in the neck. Another testifies that the jumpsuit seems um, seems cut not torn by a dingo. However, biologist Joy Cool's testify um, t- testimony. I can't speak. Her testimony is like the nail in the coffin when she testifies that the blood found in the car specifically belongs to an infant, and her tests prove it. However, when the defense questions these tests, Joy says standard practice in her lab is to destroy the samples after they're tested. Okay, red fucking flag, people. Yeah. Another expert witness is called to testify that dingo attacks just aren't consistent with the clothing and that there's no way a dingo could fit a baby's head in its mouth. This expert is left literally speechless after the defense shows him a photo of a dingo with a life-size baby doll's head in its mouth with the canine (laughs) teeth reaching all the way down to the doll's ear. To this, the expert simply says his earliest supposit. Oh no, it's happening again. Supposation. His earlier testimony might have been mistaken. Right. (laughs) A fucking idiot. He's just like, oh. He's like, well, uh, yeah, yeah, good point, mate. Well, yep, you got me there. Fuck me. Guess you're the expert now, aren't you, chief? So the final witness for the prosecution is our fair dinkum, true blue dingo expert. Fuzzy Butler. British man, James Cameron. He's also a forensic um, professor of forensic medicine, and he testifies that Azaria was killed by a cutting instrument across the neck held by a human. He also notes that under ultraviolet light, you can allegedly see the imprint of a small adult's hand in blood on Azaria's jumpsuit. Okay. Cross-examination then focuses on the many cases that our friend James has also testified on in the past, where... He's provided, quote, expert witness to help incriminate people who had very shortly after turned out to be completely innocent suspects. Uh. So the defense then does their part. They interview Lindy and about two dozen witnesses who all testify that the family are great. They were a loving couple. They loved their children and that ever since they've been grieving for the baby's loss. For the loss of their child, yeah. Forensic experts also basically trash the prosecution's blood tests. Some of the most riveting defense testimony comes from actual dingo expert, Les Harris, who contended that a dingo after prey, that a dingo after prey the size of Azario would, quote, 
make seizure, which would be of the entire head, it would close its jaws sufficiently to render the mammal immobile. It would be most unlikely to hang around with its prey, Harris contended. Harris said dingoes kill in the field, produce very little blood, and that they characteristically shake their heads after taking prey to break the neck. Mm. Which, if you've ever seen our cats play with something, you yeah. notice they do a similar thing. They'll grab it and shake their head. They do it with birds. Yeah. Because... They also drop into their sides and kick. Yeah, it's an feet. opportunistic kill. Yeah. So they'll try and break the neck. It's a very common thing. And, yeah. and you see with um, kookaburras as well, picking up snakes, they'll... Bash whack it. him across, yeah. across trees. It's human inst- uh, animal instinct. So, after all of this, the jurors are sent out. The judge reminds the jurors as they leave that Sally Lowe specifically remembers hearing the baby's cry after Lindy has come back, meaning the baby must have been alive at that time. Yeah. Everyone expects Lindy to be acquitted. However, at 8.37pm, October 29th, the jury finds Lindy guilty of murder and Michael of being an accessory, and she's sentenced to life in prison. The judge, however, suspends Michael's sentence, saying that he considers it appropriate, but also in the interests of justice. So basically, he's trying to do what he can, because he doesn't think they did it. So Lindy goes to jail for three years for the murder of her child. And through this time... There's um, public petitions for her release. There's like appeal after appeal. And basically yeah. the entire country is literally split 50-50. Yeah, I remember this on being whether a huge or not thing. She's done it. Yeah. So in 1986, David Brett, a tourist, goes to hike Uluru. During his hike, he trips during an evening climb and falls to his death. Oh, shit. Eight days later, his body is discovered in an area full of dingo lairs. While police are scouring the area, looking for body parts of Brett that have likely been bitten and taken off by dingoes, they find a white baby's jacket. Oh, shit. It's Azaria's missing jacket that Lindy had said she had on that night and was never found. Oh, shit. Lindy is released almost immediately. In 1988, all convictions against the Chamberlains are removed and the family is eventually paid $1.3 million in compensation. However, this only covers a tiny portion of the legal bills that they've incurred. Yeah, fucking of course. Trying to prove that they were innocent. Yeah, it's an expensive game, people. Yeah, and to this day, Azaria's body has never been found. Shit. Now, some important shit about the evidence that was presented against the Chamberlains. Do it. So when Azaria's clothes were originally found, it was noted that her singlet was inside out. And Lindy swore up and down that she was always really pedantic not to put the baby's singlet on inside out. Turns out that the clothes were actually moved and arranged by an investigator for an evidence photo. Whether or not this was done like as a malicious thing or just him trying to take photos of the evidence isn't really clear. Mm. But the, ev- the the evidence that they based off in court had been essentially tampered, tampered with. with. Yeah. The other huge thing that the prosecutor relied on was the fact that the blood that they allegedly found was specifically fetal hemoglobin, which could only be found in babies. Yeah. Turns out the same organic compounds that produce those results also occur mucus from your nose and chocolate milkshakes. Huh. Both of which had been present in the vehicle. 
Because oh, I don't okay. know if you've ever met a baby. Like they chocolate snot. Milk. They snot oh, a lot. Yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> also, it turns out a different dingo expert later came out and said that dingo teeth can shear clean through material as tough as a seatbelt. So it would have had no issues shearing clean through a baby jumpsuit. Yeah, that makes Also, in sense. other tests, for examples, they'd thrown female dingoes uh, bundles of meat wrapped in paper and the dingoes had managed to remove the meat without tearing the paper. Really? Yeah. Wow. Evidence also suggests that dingoes routinely kill and carry around whole kangaroos. So, for them to carry a baby... Oh, what? Yeah. So they'll, like an adult kangaroo? Yeah. Fuck off. Yeah. So, I guess they'll like drag it by the foot. But they can drag Dude, that. That's so a, a heavy dingo animal. would have had no issue. Fuck. Yeah. Dude. Yeah, like a, how... Bigger babies like five kilos. I think Azaria was quoted as being four point five. Yeah, fucking no challenge. So less than our cat. <laughs> yeah, and kangaroos like not, a dingo would not have an issue. Kangaroos are as like nearly as heavy as humans. Yeah, yeah. probably they're yeah. muscly as yeah. They're pure muscle. They're lean meat animals. Also, fun fact: um, Azaria has a half sister because Lindy and Michael sadly got divorced, oh. and they have been quoted as saying that they believe if Azaria hadn't disappeared, they'd still be together today. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so Azaria has a half-sister who's actually um, a dingo trainer. Oh. Like, she went on to become a dingo trainer. That's Which I nice. thought was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just a very sad story about, I guess, a combination of things of them not reacting in what they people believe is the correct way. Yeah. The fact that they were a bit odd and they were part of a religion people didn't really understand. And so the media and the police just decided that they were guilty. Yeah, kind of a sign of the times, isn't it? And it makes you wonder, because it was such a highly covered media event, it gets to a point where no matter what you say, it's impossible to have jurors who are unbiased. Yeah, 100%. Because everyone... Yeah you know, watches or reads or listens to the news in some capacity, especially in the 80s where there was no social media or anything. You either watch TV or listen to the radio or read the newspaper. Like, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to avoid it. So, yeah. Yeah, literally the entire jury would be somewhat already determined. Like, they would already have their mind made up, made up, sorry. And then the thing about... As a human being, making your 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 mind up when you're presented new information and new evidence, it's hard to then defer your answer to another answer. Yeah, well, even the even the judge that yeah. presided over their case didn't think that Lindy had done it, and she was still. It's just not lucky. Like it's obviously awful, but it's lucky that. She only served three years. Yeah. Because going off her sentence, she could have still been in jail today. Today, yeah, exactly. If that, you know, the tragedy of one Fuck. man's death meant that a woman who'd been wrongfully imprisoned for the murder of her own daughter I wonder, was um, released. I wonder what she's doing now. I couldn't find much information on her. I know she wrote a book. I know Michael has passed away. Michael passed away in 2017 from leukemia. He was in oh, his 70s. Sad. Yeah. So he had a long life. Um, but, yeah, I believe, from what I can say, I believe Lindy's possibly still alive. Right. But I didn't look that up, yeah. so I could be wrong. So the thing about, um, since it's happened in Australia, it's hard to find um, 
information about it because it's not so much a global thing. Yeah. You know? But no, this this case just essentially divided Australia the nation, yeah. in half. Yeah. I remember even just in the early 2000s, you, you would still get coverage over it. People would be talking about it. And, and I think to this day, <laughs> there's still people who yeah. believe that they killed their baby. Well, it's our very own um, Brendan Dassey situation where it's like literally divided an entire country. Yeah. And in you know our case, it's just been within our own country. But some people believe one side, some people believe the other. But at the end of the day, I think the prosecution was never able to prove that Lindy had any form of motive. There was no motive. There was to no do so. motive, and <clears throat> no real evidence the the church she was a part of isn't even a a, a um sacrifice or sacrificial no. belief no not at all they're just christians that are very uh adamant on certain rules yeah i can't i honestly can't say i know much about well i touched on it in in the in the david koresh episode they, yeah. they're essentially just christians who believe that teenagers shouldn't have sex before marriage and shouldn't experiment in drugs and shouldn't party. Mm. So they're just very conservative Christians. Yeah. That don't, doesn't mean they're fucking sacrificing babies to atone for their sins. Yeah, but just very sad that these this family basically had their lives destroyed twice. Yeah. Once when their baby was taken and, and then, then when again when convicted. the media just... The media and the police just decided that they had done it yeah, and they were going to do whatever they could to prove you know that what? they had done it. This relate could relate. Uh, we could link this to the McCann update with Madeline McCann. Yes. Another very, well, that actually is what inspired me to do this story. Right. I was talking about a family who people were and still are convinced that, that they murdered their, murdered child. their child. Yeah. And then evidence comes out to show that you've been persecuting this poor family for all these years and they had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Because what just came out about the McCann thing? I think like... there's a man, a German man who's alive and in prison who, but I think when a case is still ongoing, they can't really release that many details about it. So, um, Toffee's sitting right down next to, to Laura. Toffee's our middle baby. Our middle child. Um, she, as you were speaking, she looks up at you, Laura, and she, you know how she does that weird thing with her mouth where she kind of opens it a little bit? Yeah. She went like this to you and she went like... Aww. Just opened her mouth. My little sooky girl. It's so cute. You come for the true crime, but you stay for the kitty commentary. Where will we go? Itty bitty kitty committee. Where will we go, they join us. Itty bitty kitty committee. There's always the one way. of them that's like a shadow. <clears throat> like if you're in a room, there's always at least one. Mm. With you in that room. Oh, he's a good girl. She's my good girl. You're my good baby. <sighs> Whoa. That was another episode. Also, can I just say, I think this is our 10th episode. Yeah, happy very, 10 I'm episodes. I'm very proud of us for like sticking it out. I think we've good gotten stuff. better. <clears throat> Although I I don't think I did a good job this week. I feel you like I stumbled job. a lot. Yeah, you're fine. You're, you just have... You issues with words, but everyone has issues with words. <laughs> I just can't speak. Yeah, I don't do English. <laughs> I don't do English. No hablas inglés. I can't. I can't speak. No, no words. We had ten episodes. We're fucking churning through it. If we didn't, if we didn't have technically thirteen, um, 
you include yeah. the minisodes. But without the minisodes, this, ten our main tenth would have been last week if we didn't have such issues with uh, our distributor, which we won't go into. Yeah, we're going to be looking to switch, I yeah. think. Or think. So any suggestions you guys might have of distributors for podcasts, uh, let us know. In uh, tweet, uh, either tweet at us, tweet, tweet at us on our Twitter, Twitter, or tweet uh, us at Twitter. Comment on one of our Instagram posts. Yeah. We're on we're on Instagram, we're Twitter, on all of the social everything. medias. Twitter, um, Instagram, probably TikTok sometime Facebook, soon. Facebook, not if they ban it in Australia. Do you reckon they will? Oh, they might. Yeah. They've um, Scomo has just basically said that he's tearing up the extradition treaty that we have with Hong Kong. Oh, uh, yeah, and I did And it's changed that. the travel warning to basically say, don't go to China, and if you're there, come home. Yeah, shit. Because apparently there's rumours that China may just start arresting... Really? ...people for, Fuck. like, arbitrary quote-breaking. China law. is that I don't know, country. this is all, like... I feel like you can't really trust the news until something is fact. It's still fiction when it comes to the news. Yeah. Um, but that's what I was reading today. But like, what's your what's your good news for the week, Tama? We should. Um, I reckon we should always try and end these episodes. On yeah. Good um, news. Good news is, uh, for us personally, we celebrated your sister's birthday the other day. We did. We, um, Happy birthday, Kelly. We had a, a pub feed and some drinks, and it's nice just like having some drinks and being at the pub again. And you know, no one's really forgotten about the necessity to social distance and to minimize the risk of spreading the the virus but uh, it's great to see you know pubs as packed as they can be serving drinks and you know everyone yeah businesses like getting back to yeah it's been it's been great and and i feel like our state new south wales is doing a pretty good job at at doing that um you know we just hope melbourne can recover from what they're going through right now and if you live in melbourne and you're listening like like stay stay cheery as you can through the yeah. second lockdown dude stay home stay safe yeah though so it fucking sucks because it's it could have been so easily avoided if it weren't for certain situations mm-hmm. which stemmed uh, supposedly from uh, security guards having sex with yeah, People how messed isolation. up is that? Because I think Victoria was the only state that had private security firms, not yeah. police and yeah. the defense force. And they were fucking the people who were in quarantine. Which, if you've ever gone to a nightclub and met a bouncer, is not surprising at yeah. all. Yeah. They're not, um, you know. There's a Batuta article. They're not the that came most out. kosher people. There's a Batuta article that came out today that was like, security guard who can't keep his dick in his pants literally fucks over an entire state. Pretty much. <clears throat> that's what it is oh well um what about you my good news <laughs> for the week would be probably canada drag race coming out oh I'm yeah i'm excited for episode two coming out tomorrow i'm a big fan of jimbo it was strange not it, having brooklyn as the, the main requisite RuPaul. yeah like if Which you're not is, gonna have rue if you're gonna do what uk UK drag races where it's like it's still Rue but like you have it for Canada. Yeah, but my friend Sarah was saying that apparently that is how Thailand drag race is done. Like they have multiple oh, hosts. So okay. they think they're f- she thinks they're following that one. Right. But I haven't seen Thai drag race so Neither. I can't I can't comment on that. That makes sense then. But yeah, I really like it. I'm excited to keep watching. All stars 
has so much drama going on at the moment. Yeah. Cannot wait for next Are week. Are you Team India? Or Team Alexis Mateo? Ba, 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 ba. Bam! Alexis Mateo. I can't do the noise. What's the noise? <laughs> no, the, the shady noise they do on the show. They have the... Like it's... I don't know. I can't do it. It's noise. like a... It's like a... Yeah. But like, oh, the, like it's the, like it's hard wood. The, it's yeah, like wood on wood. The wood noise. block thing. The wood. Yeah, so I can't physically make that sound yeah, yeah, with my mouth. Yeah. Whoopah! Bam! Party. Um, yeah. I feel like this has been a very long episode, so I think we should wrap this shit up. Yeah, thanks for sticking around for this episode. It's I been hope a long this was one. interesting. I hope I didn't stumble as much as I felt like I was stumbling. Mm. I guess we shall see. Fucking Australia, mate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess that's it. Cool. And we'll see you next week as scheduled. Bye! Bye.